0: Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I did not write down what page is on, but it's at the beginning. So look at maybe page 2. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13 today. Thanks, Well, this morning, as we're looking at this, just a reminder that the Bible begins with two chapters that talk about the creation of the heavens and the earth. God creates this beautiful world coursing with life and brimming with God's goodness. A world full of God's abundant provision and intimate presence. He walks with his people and they have all they could ever need. He gives their lives a noble and meaningful purpose and provides them with rich companionship in their relationships with each other. That's the first two chapters. Then, fast forward, the Bible ends with two chapters that talk about the new heavens and the new earth. It's Eden 2.0, a place filled with the glory and presence of God and empty of death, sin, pain, crying and curse. A place where life literally flows through the streets and healing grows on trees and the glory of the Lord lights up the world. I mean, can you imagine? It's the place that our hearts long and ache for, the place that we feel homesick for without ever having been there. It's the place we were made to live and the place God's redeemed people one day will live. That's the last two chapters. So the first two chapters, last two chapters. But between those first two chapters and last two chapters is life as we know it. Life between Eden and the new earth. Between the garden and glory. It's where most of your Bible takes place and where every second of our lives occur. And between the garden and glory, let's just be honest, life is hard life is full of pain and toil and death full of tears and exhaustion and futility and the question we want to look at today is why why is the world the way it is why is life the way it is why don't we still live in this paradise if that's where we where things started and that's where things are going why this interruption Today we're going to look at what is often called the fall. This is the name for the event that we're looking at in Genesis 3 that has shaped world history more than any other event. Except one. These few verses explain how sin entered the world and how mankind all became corrupted by its poison. From this event onward, every human being has inherited both the guilt... And corruption of Adam, our first father. Well, every human but one. We'll say more about this later, but this right here is where everything went wrong. This is the root of all our problems, right here in Genesis 3. Any attempt to explain why the world is messed up, and I googled it, and there's a lot of attempts to explain it. There was like over 193,000 hits that showed up when I said, why is the world messed up? I would not encourage you to go read most of them. But none of them started with Genesis 3. And you can't understand why the world is so messed up without starting here. So what we're going to look at today is Genesis 3. And we're going to look at it in two main sections. In verses 1 through 7, we're going to see the fall. And then in verses 8 to 13, we're going to see the fallout. What went wrong? And what was the response to What went wrong? We'll look at sin and man's response to sin. So let's first look at the fall. As chapter 3 opens, we meet the enemy. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So into this perfect garden temple, full of all things very good, slithers a serpent. Now, we're not told the serpent's name at this point. All we know is that it's a serpent. But the rest of the Bible clues us in to who this serpent is. Listen to Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So this serpent, the rest of the Bible tells us, this is Satan in the garden. And we're going to talk more about this serpent next week. But for for now, I want you just to notice two things. One, the serpent was a created being. You see that in the text? That the rest, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. In other words, you need to know right up front that this, this evil one here is not eternal like God. This is not God's evil equal. He's not a match for the creator going head to head in this dualism. He's a creature. He's down here. Second, there's actually a wordplay going on here in the original language. At the end of chapter 2, one of the, la- the last thing we see is we're told that the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. It was a state of perfect innocence, free from guilt and shame. They had nothing to hide. And that word for naked at the end of chapter 2 is arumim, arumim. Arumim. And then in the very next verse, we meet this serpent who is crafty. The word is Arum. Arumim? Arum. He's more Arum than any other beast. More crafty. And so right away the reader's clueing in his, the writer's clueing in his readers, hey, here's a hint. There's something about this Arum serpent, this crafty serpent that's going to threaten the state of Arumim naked and unashamed. We don't know what yet. But we know there's a threat to their naked and unashamed state. But, thankfully, he doesn't leave us hanging. We don't have to wait long to see what the threat is. The serpent jumps right in. Look at verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And here, we encounter temptation for the first time. And there's so much And I say so much, I I can't emphasize how much there is for us to learn about how temptation works by seeing how this situation unfolds. And we're not going to see it all. This is a great text that I can't wait to talk about in small groups because there's so much more to get out of this. But let's see what we can learn about temptation. First, the serpent just asks a question. That's all he does. Did God actually say? He doesn't make a strong assertion. He doesn't say, this is what I think, or this is what's true. He just, he just asks a question, All right? So many times, that's how bad theology gets started. Is, I'm not saying it, I'm just asking questions. Innocent. So he starts by questioning God's word. Notice, he brings up God's word. Like, he introduces the topic of what God has said. Satan does. He's not afraid to talk about the word of God, in some sense. But he does it not to submit to it, but to undermine it. And there's this sense of shock in his voice. Because when the serpent questions God's word, he's also distorting God's word. It's as though he's asking, like in disbelief, did God really actually tell you guys that you can't eat from any tree? Seriously? That's kind of the tone of how this is written. His question is meant to try to make God look mean and restrictive, like some grumpy killjoy who's not letting his people enjoy the good things he's made. He's questioning God's goodness. He's he's planting these seeds and he wants Eve to say, like, can you believe him? Wow, I mean, if that's God and he's not letting you eat from any tree, But notice that what he claims God said is actually the exact opposite of what God said. Look back up to chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden but one. So God says, eat of every tree. And the serpent claims, God said, don't eat of any tree. Satan took God's generous provision and tries to make it seem as though God were holding out on Eve. He plants this seed that just starts to niggle at the back of her mind, this doubting of God's goodness. And notice he he puts Eve on the defensive in regard to God. Right away, she's having to try to stand up for God. Instead of, this is his world. Up to this point, every creature, all it knows is that God made me and I'm doing the things that he's created me to do. Like, why would we have to be on the defensive to defend the creator? But he puts Eve back on her heels. She's on the defensive. Let's see how she responds. Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So at first glance, it might seem like, Okay, she's holding her ground here. But if we look a little closer, we'll see temptation is already wrapping its tentacles around her. And we see it in at least a couple ways. First, like the snake, she minimizes God's provision. Now, it might seem small to us, but it's not small in the scheme of things here. Because she doesn't include words like surely. Like God's command originally, remember it was a command. He emphasized You may surely eat. That that word is in there. This is an emphatic, like, eat, feast, enjoy from the trees. She doesn't put that in there. She says, yeah, yeah, we we can eat. And God says, from all the trees. Like, that's in there. Like, God's word, each word matters. And he says, I want you to know you can eat from all the trees. And she says, we may eat from the trees. Where God made a point to emphasize how much he was giving them, Eve simply acknowledges, yeah, he did. He gave us some stuff. So she subtly minimizes his provision. But then the second thing she does is she adds to his prohibition. We have no record of God ever telling them not to touch the tree. God said, don't eat it. And she adds a rule that God didn't make. Not only does she add a rule, she attributes it to God. Did you catch that? Notice in your Bibles that that part is in quotes from where it says, God said. So Eve minimizes what God has provided, and she adds to what he's prohibited. As this temptation goes on, God is starting to look a little less generous and less good. In verse 4 then, the serpent turns up the pressure. Look there. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now the serpent takes the next step here. He directly refutes God's word. God said, You will surely, it's the same type of word, you will surely die. The serpent says, you will not surely die. Now, again, notice that's not where the serpent started. He didn't jump right to that. First, he just questions. I'm just, I'm just questioning God's word. Did, did God really say? And then he distorts God's word, twists it. Now he flat out rejects God's word. And he offers instead a different view of reality than what God has said. He's lying and deceiving. And what you need to see is that at the heart of his lie is the idea that there will be no consequences for sin. He tells the woman that she can do what God said not to do and nothing will happen. The penalty that God warned you about? Just an empty threat. Nothing bad is actually going to happen by doing this. And friends, this is the lie that we all believe whenever we sin if we really believed that our disobedience against god deserved death and would surely lead to us experiencing the wrath of god none of us would sin but we start to believe the lie that we won't surely die nothing's going to happen i mean i see other people living that way like they do that and they're fine I've I've done this before. Like it's not the first time I've disobeyed God this way and I mean nothing's really happened. So we do what we know God has told us not to because we don't think there's consequences. And here's what you need to understand about Satan. We see it here in the garden and you see it all throughout scripture and all throughout our lives. He doesn't care about you being afraid of hell. We usually picture Satan as trying to scare us and terrify us and that hell should be this. He wants us to be just absolutely horrified. of hell. He doesn't want you to be horrified about hell. He wants you to think it's imaginary. That it's just a made-up thing that some religious people along the way invented to try to scare people into good behavior. He wants you, he wants to deceive you into thinking your sin has no consequences. Certainly no eternal ones. but Satan doesn't stop there. Not only does he directly contradict what God has spoken, he goes on and claims to know God's motives for making an empty threat. He claims that he's inside God's head and he knows not just what God is doing, but he's like, let me tell you why God said that to you. Here's what's really going on in God's heart, Eve. God's withholding good from you. He doesn't want you to have something. He has. The serpent's telling Eve, look, there's another way to have the knowledge that you want. You don't have to look to God to know good and evil. You can be independent of God, self-sufficient, self-reliant. You don't need him. You can get what you want without God. What the serpent is offering her is the chance to break free from her God-given creaturely limitations and instead be like God. This is at the heart of our rebellion. Even though we have the honor of being made in his image and likeness. Like that would have been one response for Eve to say is, I am like God. He made me in his image and likeness. But even though we're made in his image and likeness, we're not satisfied with that. Sin is our wanting to be like God In ways that we have no right to be. We want power like him. We want knowledge like him. We want authority like him. We want to feel like we can be present everywhere like him. We want to be self sufficient like him, to be the standard of holiness like him. We want glory like him. We want worship like him. We don't just want to be minor characters in his story, we want to be co stars. And sin holds out a promise that if you just reach out and take this, you could be like God. It's right there. The problem is that the Bible is crystal clear. There is no one like God. Exodus 9, 14, God says, "'For this time I will send all my plagues "'on you yourself and on your servants and your people "'so that you may know that there is none like me "'in all the earth.'" Isaiah 46, 9, "'Remember the former things of old, "'for I am God and there is no other. "'I am God and there is none like me.'" Exodus 15, "'Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? "'Who is like you, majestic in holiness, "'awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders.'" Second Chronicles 6, O oh Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. And Micah 7, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Friends, there is no one like our God. He is utterly and absolutely unique and one of a kind the one and only true God, without comparison, without rival, without equal. Should we be like God? Yes. In the ways He's called us to be like Him. In holiness, in love, in mercy. But to seek to be like God in ways that violate our limits as His creatures is treason. It's not about wanting to worship him. It's about wanting to be him. And that impulse and desire to throw off our creaturely limits and usurp the rights of the creator is part of the fabric of sin. Here's what we need to see. Sin is all about our desires. Satan knows that. Did you realize in here, where does he ever tell Eve to eat the fruit? He never directly tells her to sin. Instead, he's sneakier than that. He's crafty. Instead of just saying, like, do this wrong thing, he appeals to her desires. He deceives her into thinking that she can have what she wants without having to get it from God in his timing and in his way. He convinces her how nice it would be to have the things she wants but doesn't have. That's how temptation works. Because sin and temptation are not mainly about behaviors, they're primarily about desires. Our battle against sin is not mainly about what you do, but about what you want. Listen to James 1 and see if it matches up with what we're seeing here in Genesis 3. James 1 says, "'Let no one say when he is tempted, "'I'm being tempted by God, "'for God cannot be tempted with evil.' And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So what's happening in temptation, according to James? We're being lured and enticed by our own desire. It's not a brute force frontal assault. It's a sneak attack. Just luring and enticing you by your own desires. And that's where it starts. It says, but notice wrong desire leads to sin and sin leads to death. And I added that part that we often read about every good gift. Notice that James, notice how James is thinking. He's thinking temptation is about your desires. It's about what you want. And what's in his head immediately, he says, don't be deceived. Every good gift, all the things you want and desire, it doesn't come that way. Where does it come? From the Father of heavenly lights. That's what Adam and Eve did not believe. They did not believe that every good and perfect gift came. They said, there's another good and perfect gift over here. And he's not giving it. I can get it another way. They were deceived. Now, to see if we're on the right track about temptation appealing to our desire, let's see where things go next. Look at verse 6. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be Desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So the serpent has gotten Eve to question God's goodness and to start wondering if there's more good out there that she can get apart from him. Now the fruit appeals to her desires in three ways here. First, she sees that it's useful. It meets a need. It's good for food. Okay. Second, she sees that it's attractive. It looks good. It's pleasing to the sight. And third, it's desirable. It gives her something she wants. And isn't this what all, like none of us would sin if we didn't see these three things in it. Is it useful? Will it help, help me do something I need to do? Does it look good? Does it look enticing? Is there something pretty and beautiful about it. And does it satisfy one of my desires? Does it help me achieve or obtain that thing that I want? And once Eve's convinced that this fruit will give her what she desires, she takes and she eats. In that moment, she shifts her commitment from doing God's will to doing her will. And just a, a quick word here. I, I wanted to make sure i don't say too much about this because i could this could be a whole sermon in itself but this is central to like how we see the christian life here what i mean is that we want to mainly help each other on the level of desires we're not out simply to police behaviors in one another and just to help each other come up with new rules and new rules and new rules we want to say how are you treasuring jesus are you desiring him does he make you happy does he satisfy you and if not How can I help that happen? What can I show you about him? We're not interested in just a a rigid religion that simply says we can keep each other in line by creating enough rules. We, We know that won't work. Eve had a rule and she disobeyed because her desires were out of whack. And so what we're after here is we're after each other's hearts. We want to say, how can I come alongside you and make sure that you're wanting Jesus? He is what you desire. Close parentheses. Okay. After Eve eats, she then gives the fruit to Adam and he eats. Now, if you've been tracking, this is the first time, notice, that Adam's mentioned in this scene. If you're reading this for the first time, you would be like, "Where's where's the guy? What's he doing? But notice that it says he was, quote, with her. She didn't go find him. He was right there the whole time. Adam was meant to be the protector of the garden sanctuary, to keep out anything that didn't belong. Remember this? But instead of getting rid of the snake, he simply stands by and lets things fall apart. We know from the New Testament, it says multiple times there, that Eve was deceived, not Adam. Sometimes people read that and they key in them and they want to like they want to throw shade at the woman and say like, oh, look what she was deceived, he wasn't. No, the point is actually that Adam's sin is perhaps worse because he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what he was doing was wrong and he did it anyway. Nobody tricked him. there's two important theological points here. First, notice the whole created order is flipped upside down. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw that God created man and woman equally in his image, but he gave the man headship over his wife. In other words, man had the special responsibility to lead, serve, protect, and provide for the woman. We also saw that God gave man and woman dominion over the animals. They were to rule over them. So you've got man who is head over his wife. Man and woman together are head over the animals. But what happens here in the fall? An animal approaches the woman who then gives fruit to the man. It's a complete reversal of God's created order. We're meant to see that in sin and when we rebel against God, everything gets flipped backwards. And if you don't think this order matters yet, just hang on a minute. We're going to circle back to it. The Second important theological point we need to see here is that this sin doesn't only affect Adam and Eve. If you're newer to Christianity, you might be thinking, that's interesting, that's, that's, that's a rough go of it for those two people, don't know them, never met them, so sorry it didn't work out for you guys. What does that have to do with my life? But when Adam sinned, we read earlier in Romans 5, sin came into the world through that one man, and death spread to all people. As the head and representative of the human race, Adam's sin had far-reaching consequences for all of us. As I said earlier, from this event onward, every one of us has inherited both the guilt and corruption of Adam, our first father. What that means is one way that we stand in opposition to a lot of our culture is we don't think that all people are good deep down. We are not born innocent. We are born guilty and under the dominion of sin and death. And that's why the world is so broken. That's why we need a savior because we are sinners both by birth and by behavior. Okay, now we spent most of our time looking at the fall into sin because that's, that's where we need to focus our time. But I want to also look briefly at the fall out. How did Adam and Eve and how do all of us respond to their sin. I'm going to summarize it in three three phrases. What we see here in these verses is they try to cover their shame, hide from God, and blame others. Cover their shame, hide from God, and blame others. Let's see what they did first. Look at the second half of verse 7. And they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So now their eyes are opened, and they got the knowledge that they were looking for but it wasn't what they hoped for. Now they had eyes to see the wrongness of what they had done. They knew they were guilty. Suddenly for the first time, there was something wrong with them and their guilt led to shame. They didn't want each other to see who they really were. They didn't want the other person to know what they had done. And rather than go to their maker for their help, They take matters into their own hands. They try to cover up their guilt and their shame. They think if they can just conceal who they are, no one will really know them and people won't be able to see the guilt and shame that they so carefully try to hide. They lost the joy of vulnerability and intimacy in their relationship. And it was replaced by a desire for self-protection and keeping a safe distance from others. They were afraid of being found out. And being put to shame, so they covered up. And don't we do the exact same thing? We all have our fig leaves that we've sewn together to hide behind. We know what we're like deep down. If you're here, if you're honest, you know there's stuff about you, man, that is really scary and really ugly, and you'd rather not anyone else know about it. We know the wrong in us. So we try to create coverings to hide who we really are because we're afraid to really be known and let others see that. There's too much guilt, too much shame so we don't let people get too close. We don't admit our weakness. We don't confess our sinfulness. We don't let each other in. Instead, we cover our guilt with fig leaves. But friends, the gospel offers us a better solution to our guilt. You need to know that Christians are not innocent people who've never done wrong. If you're here and that's your perception of Christian, you are in the wrong church because that is not who we are. And being a Christian is not about covering up our guilt with some good morals and a happy face. A Christian is someone who knows their guilt but also knows what to do with it. What God offers us in the gospel is not a covering of our guilt but a cleansing of our guilt. He doesn't hide it. He removes it. Jeremiah 33.8 says... I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Friend, when you trust in Jesus, he cleanses our guilt and removes our shame. He takes your shameful, sinful record and exchanges it for his spotless record. He trades your sin for his righteousness. So while we are still guilty of horrible wrongs, our guilt no longer condemns us. That's so why we love to sing that song when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within and it's there but when he does that upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Friends, so let's stop trying to cover our guilt from each other and instead take it to Jesus. Jesus. cleanses us from it how do we do that we don't cover our sin we confess it because if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness all right now it's not just from each other they they made these coverings to hide from each other but it's not just from one another that we hide verse eight and they heard the sound of the lord god walking in the garden in the cool of the day And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This, to me, is tragic. Mankind was created as the apple of God's eye. The crown of his creation. God made us to delight in him and enjoy a relationship with him. But now, When God draws near, Adam and Eve don't run to him in joy. God! They run from him in fear. They hide from God. And this is both silly and sad. It's silly because he's God. We can't hide from him. He always sees us. Hebrews 4 says no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hiding from God is impossible and hiding from God is sad because hiding from him is like a sick man hiding from a doctor who holds the cure. It's like the lonely woman hiding from her husband who waits to shower her with affection. By hiding from God, they are cutting themselves off from the only one who can help them, who can save them, and who can change them. And yet again, it can feel like looking in the mirror because we do the same thing. When we know that we're in a bad spot with the Lord, or when our sins are piling up, or our love for him has grown cold, don't we so often try to hide from him? Some of you have been trying to hide from God for years. Some hide by not going to church. Others try to hide in church. You're afraid of God because you know your guilt and your shame. And you're afraid that if he sees you like you really are, not the cleaned up, super involved, good Christian man or woman that everyone else knows you to be, but if he sees you for who you really are, the thoughts you really think, the things you say when no one else is around, will reject you. Or worse. So you hide. But do you see what happens here in the garden, friends? Oh, don't miss this beautiful picture. What happens in the garden is God comes looking for sinners. Sinners. He doesn't leave them in their mess. He comes to them and seeks them out. This is what our God does. Sinners don't go looking for God. God comes looking for us. In all our guilt and in all our shame and in all our hiding places, He comes looking for us. What did Jesus tell us He came to do? He came to seek and save the lost and the hiding and the fearful and the guilty and the ashamed He came to find us. This is why we have a time of confession each week. It's a time where God invites us to step out of our hiding places and find him waiting for us with a love that knows our deepest secrets and our darkest sins and loves us anyway. How can that be? Because Jesus has taken our guilt. He's reconciled us back to God. So we don't have to hide anymore. And don't miss something else here. Remember how we said the created order was turned upside down when the animal goes to the woman, goes to the man? Notice who God goes looking for first. Eve ate the fruit first. But God goes looking for Adam. He doesn't even go looking for them, the th- I know in English it's hard to see, but the yous, when God calls out to Adam, they're singular. He's talking to one person. Adam, where are you? Why does he go looking for Adam? Because he's the head. He's the one who represents the human race. And that's why it's through him, through Adam, that sin came into the world. This is why understanding God's design for gender matters, because it impacts everything. It's not just how people behave in their homes. It's not just how people behave in the church. It's understanding how sin came into the world and how one day God rescues us from sin in the gospel. It matters. Because if Adam is not the head and he's not the representative, then sin is not rightly attributed to all his line after him. And in the same way, the righteousness of the second Adam cannot rightly be attributed to his line and to all that he represents. This stuff matters, guys. It's not trivial or secondary. Finally, Adam and Eve both responded to their sin by blaming others. Look at verse 11. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Here, Adam refused to take accountability for his actions. Instead, he blamed the woman. And by doing that, he was saying that God's good gift of a wife, remember how excited he was in chapter 2? At last! Bone in my bones! He's like, yeah, her? No good, God. He's taking, he's doing exactly what the serpent did. He's taking God's good gift and saying, yeah, it's not really so good after all. Not only that, even worse, do you notice that Adam is indirectly blaming God? It wasn't just the woman. It was the woman you gave me. In other words, God, if you hadn't put her here, none of this happens. So at the end of the day, it's not really me you need to look at, but... And Eve then follows suit. She follows her husband's lead and she passes the blame on to the serpent. Both Adam and Eve, when confronted with their sin, don't own it. At least not right away. Instead, they get defensive. They make excuses. They blame others for what they've done. Does that sound a little too familiar? We all show our family resemblance by following in our first parents' footsteps. Too often we avoid taking the guilt that is rightly ours... We instead blame it on others. But Jesus did just the opposite. He took the guilt that rightly belonged to others and died as though he were the one to blame. Where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus succeeded. Unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus didn't try to take a shortcut to glory or obtain good apart from God. Remember, that was Eve's downfall. That was their downfall is that they both said, here's something that God has said is not ours, at least not yet, but we think we can get it without God. And so we just reach out and grab it. But even though he is God, Jesus didn't try to be like God in ways that challenge God's good plan. Instead, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, because he didn't reach out for it himself, but trusted his Father, that God would give it to him in his time and in his way, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus doesn't reach out and take what was his not to take. Instead, he trusts his Father and says, not my will, but yours be done. And because he did, he is now the new Adam, the head of a new line of people, redeemed by grace. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous.